Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast series from Harvard. It's called Making Technology Personal and over the course of the next six episodes, we'll be digging into the role of technology brands in people's lives today, the relationship people want with them based on this and what tech brands need to do to bring their social purpose and promise to life. We'll be talking to CEOs, CMOs and comms people from across the industry to understand how, against the backdrop of a tough narrative, the sector continues to shine and keep engaging the people it needs to reach. Earlier this month, we gathered some of the brightest minds in the tech space to start this discussion and get their thoughts on what the industry needs to do next. Paul Holmes, founder of The Holmes Report, was our host. And joining him was Helen Prouse, who heads up communications for Square in the UK, Danielle Restivo, head of global communications for SAP's cloud computing operation, and our own CEO, Louis Sinclair. Good morning, everybody. I am hugely impressed that Harvard can persuade, what, about 50 of you to show up here at 9 o'clock in the morning. We always assume if we're starting an event at 9, people will drift in about 9.20 and spend the next quarter of an hour getting coffee. So you obviously have a very energized group of clients and friends here. So thanks for coming. I find myself at that point in life where I start an incredible number of discussions and conversations by saying, I remember 30 years ago when I was writing, and, and so in that spirit, I remember 30 years ago, one of, the first, one of the first stories that I ever wrote about sort of technology PR and technology issues was Microsoft suddenly running head, head first into antitrust issues and speaking to executives at Microsoft, which was, I, look, by all, uh, in all other aspects, an incredibly sophisticated organization who would turn around and say to me things like, I don't understand why we can't just make the products, and if people like the products, they'll buy the products, and why, why are people hassling us about all these issues that are peripheral to our products? I, at the time, I wrote the story as being about a sea change in technology and technology companies waking up to the issues environment in which they survived, except, right, clearly they didn't because 12 months ago, I could have written exactly the same story about Uber. You know, we're providing, we're providing people with rides and, you know, people buy our product. Why is everybody telling us that we can't, can't treat our employees as, as if they're off the books or, you know, we're making a great product, just leave us alone. And, and this, this has been, you know, an issue in the technology sector, clearly, for as long as I've been writing about it. So I wanted to start out by, by going back to the beginning and saying, how much of your time do you spend doing straight ahead product and corporate PR around the stuff you make and the, the solutions you provide? And how much time do you spend thinking about the issues around your brand? And do you get the sense that that's changing? And do you get the sense that your senior management is more engaged with the issues environment today than, than maybe five or six years ago? Oh, that's five questions. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, so I, I joined uh, SCP eight months ago, and we make uh, enterprise resource planning software, which is very sexy, but very, very important because it helps companies run. And I've actually been working with our senior leadership to help them understand that 
you know, straight pitching PR around uh, a solution or a product, it doesn't get you very far. It's not that interesting because ultimately the people who are using your solution are people. They're humans and they want to, they don't want to just have to interact with technology. They want technology to make their lives easier. So that's something that I've looked at in terms of what are the issues and desires that are driving people? Why would they want to use something rather than getting into the deep technical issues of that product? It's a lot more compelling. And ultimately, whether you're in B2B or B2C, it's people who are, who are going to be using it. Yeah, I absolutely echo that. So um, the company I work for is called Square. We're a mobile payments technology company. Um, we make it really easy for small businesses to accept debit and credit cards, which in itself is not the sexiest product in the world. Um, so when we are telling our story to the outside world, one of the things that we always want to do is put our sellers, the people that use Square, front and centre of the PR that we're doing. So a, a story about an integration with a, an API partner is relatively boring. If it's a story about how that has a enabled somebody that had a market stall to then also be able to sell their products online and take what was a local business to become a global business, suddenly that becomes interesting. So I think that that sort of marrying of the, the technology and the product with the end user is, is absolutely critical. So to your question about how much time we think about, about issues and things that are going on in our business versus just pitching stories, I don't think the two are really easy to separate because I think you know increasingly we're in a very fragmented media environment we get questions from journalists we get questions on social media all sorts of different things coming towards us and we have to have a holistic approach um, so I think that's one of the big challenges for, for in-house comms managers is to think about how do you how do you make sure that you are being proactive and coming up with interesting and creative ways to tell your story but also being mindful of those issues that are going on in the background as well what about from from your point of view as an agency? What are you being asked to do? Yeah, I, th I think I think it clearly depends on the client. I think that for a client to really change generally, and I don't think it's it's just tech. Generally, to get a corporate to change behaviour, they generally get forced into it, and it's it would be a very very brave tech business to take that and say, look, this stuff isn't all great. It's just not in the DNA of the, t the tech world. But I think the the clients that get what their part might be in the future and have a really good eye on where things are going have probably got a much better chance of creating a story uh, and a purpose to help get them there. And uh, that depends on where the client sits. I think we've got a great set of clients who are kind of trying to do that. I think very often internal structures at big companies can make that quite difficult to do. And that just leads to maybe sometimes underestimating how long it takes to actually, to actually make those changes. Some of the nimble, smaller businesses have it in their DNA to do that. And they're just there to disrupt anyway, so. Now, this, this may be a difficult question because you're both in a B2B environment where this may be less of a problem, but you also both worked in, in companies that had a much more consumer-facing proposition in, in the past. So I'm wondering, this was alluded to in your research, and I've seen it in, in other research, that there, there's, there's a divide, I think, between those consumers who are excited about new technology and all the potential that it unlocks and those consumers who are terrified 
that technology is moving too fast, that it all has unintended consequences. I mean, I think some of the stuff with, with Facebook and, and Twitter that we've seen in the last uh, year or so uh, would fall under that heading. Certainly AI is something that is concerning almost everybody, whether it's job losses or, you know, whether we should welcome our robot overlords. But first of all, do you have a sort of strategy for technophobes? Or do you think companies need to develop strategies so that they are keeping technophobes quiet while still getting everybody else excited about what's to come? That's a super interesting question. So at Square, um, if you've been to the States, you'll have heard of Square because it's everywhere. It was founded by Jack Dorsey, who's the founder of Twitter. It's been around for nine years there. And when it first came to market in the US, it was an incredibly disruptive product because what it did was it enabled small businesses to suddenly be able to start taking card payments on the go using the Square Reader and their mobile phone wherever they were. And previously in the past, they would have had to have gone to their bank, uh, made an application to take cards, potentially paid a deposit, several thousand dollars sometimes. They would have had to have rented a card terminal if they were allowed to paid around $30 a month rental for that card machine and then paid up to seven different fees every time they took a credit or debit card payment. Now compare that to five minutes sign up online, um, plug it into your phone and you can start taking card payments right away. So I think that we came to market certainly in the States with a really strong proposition and that proposition was powered by machine learning and AI actually because what it means is that when we look at your business if you say I'm a coffee shop so we say, great, here's your square reader, off you go. And they start taking loads of transactions for $2.50, $3, $3.50, $7. We say, yep, you're a coffee shop, all good, off you go. That approach to risk is what we call a, a machine learning and an AI approach to risk. So what it allows us to do is to use the huge amount of data that we've got to then uh, apply that to all of our customers. So we see all of these coffee shops across the states and we say, yeah, they're all coffee shops. None of them are fraudsters. It's all good. And the traditional approach would be, if you tell me you're a coffee shop, you need to bring me bank statements. You need to prove to me that you're a coffee shop before I'll let you start transacting. So that's a really positive impact of machine learning and AI. It's nothing to do with, with robot overlords, right? It's about economic empowerment. It's about making sure yes. that people well in our <laughs> business it's not so we find again back to that point that you made about putting people and the businesses that use our service front and center because actually it is scary when you just talk about the technology it's scary when you don't talk about the practical implications of it and the way in which it positively impacts people's lives and previous to working at Square I worked at Twitter for nearly five years and again that was a lot of the challenge there you know the media typically don't want to tell the good news stories um, so a lot of what we were doing there was kind of finding those great stories of things going on on the platform and shouting about them. So it was an amazing one this week. Who saw the story about the lady who went to Marks and Spencer's and had this kind of wave of nostalgia for her father that had passed away? And there was this amazing gathering of people together on Twitter. And they had these conversations about, you know, nostalgia and, and lost parents. And then somebody realized that he was, that his school teacher, this, this father that died. And the previous pupils and the daughter connected on Twitter and it was absolutely life-changing for her. So I think shining a light on those positive things that are happening is super important and bringing the human aspects of technology to life in our communications is like absolutely core to what we do. I don't just worry about the technophobes. I think there's a middle meeting place where we have to bring the technophobes and then those that are so engaged with technology and so immersed in using their phones on a regular basis that they don't want to use something that is outdated or frustrating or you know uh, difficult in any way. So this was a problem, um, uh, as you came from Twitter, I spent six years at LinkedIn and we had people who, you know, we spent a lot of time teaching people how to use LinkedIn properly because they would say, oh, I don't get it. It's, you know, it's 
not that simple and you know how much time do I need to spend and what do I need to do so we spent a lot of time explaining that but then equally we had a very vocal audience who said you know I want more functionality and I want this to happen and why don't we have this and when it comes to ERP in the cloud which is what I do now we have a, a bit of a challenge because I'm sure everyone in this room has dealt with uh, going through a pr procurement process and how fun that is. Uh, you know, it can be incredibly difficult. And so what we're trying to do is take the experience someone would have on a, on a phone, because even my uh, seven-year-old father uses an iPhone and he loves that interface, and take that sort of the notion of tiles and put that into an ERP so that not only for a technophobe is it simple, oh, I just have to, you know, use these tiles, but then for a younger generation coming into the workforce, they simply will not put up with, you know, technically slow programs. They just won't do it. They'll leave. They'll go somewhere else. So if you have something that for them looks familiar, something that they can simply say, oh, I, I recognize this interface. This is something I would use. Then, you know, that's the way to do it. So I do believe you have to kind of bring both of those camps together into the, into the center and make it as simple as possible. But when it comes to AI, I, I do think, you know, one of the things we're trying to talk about more is that, Yes, it's a, you know, for some they think it will take jobs away and, you know, robots will be doing things that we previously did. And we choose to look at it in a better way, which is that if machine learning can automate tasks for you that normally would take a, you know, a human eight hours, that's eight hours that that person can then take and focus on innovation. That's eight hours that someone can take and go and sit in a room and think about how to make the business better, maybe make the world better if, if possible. And so really it's just that it's those manual mundane tasks that we all hate. If we can automate those. I think that's nothing but a positive. Yeah, I mean, the brilliant answers to both of those. I mean, I think, um, I think it is definitely a, an, an education piece and it's really tough to get away from negative stories. I, when I was at Microsoft, I, I looked after all the B2B products there and no one ever noticed that stuff. You use Microsoft every single day. Everyone in this office will use it and you only ever notice it when it, when it breaks. And we used to call it, you know, it's like petrol in your car. You don't, don't think this is brilliant. You just notice it when it runs out and you're on the side of the road. And those kind of utility, technology slowly just, all technologies turn into utilities at some point. And it's about reminding people that, um, that this stuff keeps the world going and keeps work working and all of that kind of stuff. And that it's helped them thus far to get to where we are. And uh, maybe that glimpse forward to AI can be a positive one, not just a negative one, I think. So I, I was going to ask the extent to which you had made the shift from you know, getting media coverage to building relationships, from media relations to public relations in, in the broader sense, and telling human stories. But I think you, you more or less answered that question uh, earlier in this process. So instead, I'm going to ask, as you've made that switch to telling human stories and building relationships, has that had a commensurate impact on how you measure what you do and the key metrics that you use? Or are you still presenting, you know, we got this many hits and we got this many opportunities to see or... How long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> this is a massive uh, bugaboo for me because, yeah, I've most of my career has been dealt in volume of media coverage and I've really been trying to shift in the last few years my teams to think about uh, how we move a relationship from one place to another and how important that is and 
I also think that a, a key measure of success is if you have executives that you're putting out into the world and they're commenting on topics, that you reach a tipping point where the press comes to you. They think about, they think about that executive, they, you know, they pick up the phone and call you when they want to talk about something, and that you can have conversations with a reporter or a blogger or an influencer that doesn't have to result in coverage, but you've made a shift in that relationship. And I think that you know, volume doesn't take into account as well, you know, the kind of tone of the piece, the, the kinds of publications that people are reading. Just as Harvard has done this research, in past roles I've done a lot of research to understand where is our audience consuming their information? Where are they spending most of their time? Is it broadcast? Is it podcasts? Where is it? And then if we say, you know, we know what that looks like, then we know if we're, if we're reaching them in the right way. So I'm, I'm all for sort of custom dashboarding out what your, what your coverage should look like and then really educating executives because senior leadership still very much thinks in volume and volume does not necessarily equate success. And there's a bunch of new technologies that make it easier than ever, right? When I first started in PR, we used to literally sit there and cut and paste and photocopy stuff onto pieces of paper. And we don't do that anymore, right? Because you can create things that showcase the work and the reach and the success of a PR program in a much more creative and interesting way. So I think that that's a definite win for the PR industry. When it sort of comes to to thinking about relationships and you know media relations versus public relations i think that that's a really really important tipping point for the industry at the moment so you just can't get a piece of coverage that hits everybody anymore. It used to be that if you could get on the six o'clock news, you know, if you could get in the Daily Mail, if you could get in the Sun, then it was sort of job done, right? And that just isn't the case anymore. Media is like super fragmented. People are consuming stuff on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on news sites, on American news sites. It's particularly in the English language, like incredibly fragmented media environment. But what I think that that does do is, is give brands the opportunity to communicate directly with consumers in a way that again was just not the case when I first started in PR. So we're seeing our role as, as PR people not to be just about being the gatekeepers between an organisation and the media but also kind of the mouthpiece between the consumer and, and the organisation which is super interesting and I think that that current landscape gives brands the opportunity to be to have much more of a direct communication, which is brilliant, but also they have to be so much more authentic than they used to be, right? Because any step change that you make, anything that's wrong, gets immediately called out. So whilst brands have this enormous opportunity to communicate directly and tell their message and create great branded content and do great social campaigns, they also have this issue that if they put a foot wrong, they really get raked over the hot coals for it in social media, in blogs, etc. So I think that's a real new challenge for PR professionals and something that we're all kind of looking into. If you think about something like the, the John, new John Lewis ad, all the Christmas ads that have gone out, I've seen all of those on the internet, right? That I ha <laughs> they didn't pay for the media placement of any of those ads, right? So that's, that's a real step change. I don't watch TV, really. We just watch a bit of Netflix every now and again. Um, so you can't just buy a 60-second, 30-second advert in the X Factor and think that that's going to hit everybody. Um, but when people are having these conversations online, they're able to, to have those conversations in public. So when I was at Twitter, we used to talk about Twitter being live, public, and conversational. Um, and as a brand, you're suddenly ejected into an environment where people are talking about you. Um, and that's, that's brilliant from a marketeer's perspective, but that's also terrifying. Um, so that's one of the big challenges and one of the, the big roles I think that, that PR people play within organisations is to help particularly, you know, quite staged, sometimes quite traditional leadership um, to understand that new environment and what that means for the business. I agree with everything the guys have said and, and I also think that measurement's important, but 
all starts with having a really, really clear objective about what you want to achieve. And so often you don't, you don't, you don't have that absolute objective, which makes it a lot easier to work out whether you, it should be media relations, whether it should be PR. We, we, we decided to add some other capabilities to our business because the challenges that clients wanted us to solve, the answer wasn't PR or media, it was something else. And I think once you've got that stuff in your armory, you can more easily answer the questions and then it's much easier to measure. And you don't get that, you know, that que those questions of, so once we start this PR stuff, the phone will start ringing and we'll start selling stuff, right? And um, once you've had that from 20 people, you think actually we can do that, but you need to do something different to achieve that objective. And I think not enough goes into the planning piece at the start to make it work. Yeah, I think historically the argument that we have a profession, as a profession, have always made for what we do is that, that nothing adds credibility to your messaging the way a third-party endorsement does, and that's why earned media has been the core of our, our focus historically. But I think more and more today companies are finding that they can be credible and engaging without using traditional earned media, that they can use paid and shared and owned platforms, create their own content, go directly to consumers, and tell those same stories, those same customer stories, in a way that has all the impact and influence that a traditional news media story has. How, how are you using all of those channels to tell your stories, and do you find it to be as effective to create your own content as to rely on uh, what, what, you know, we're all journalists now, but what used to be called journalists? Yeah, I think it's equally as effective because uh, you can, as, as Louis mentioned, you can start to put a strategy behind what that content needs to achieve. And that might take a year or two where you're consistently putting something out and it tells a certain story. And then there's a, you know, a clear, there's clear guidance behind that. I also think it's very important for, uh, for any customers or consumers to hear from the executives at these companies directly a little bit more often rather than just you know, having them quoted. And one of the things we've uh, done is put together a very robust uh, customer reference program where our customers tell those stories for us. We just step back and let them say, this is what happened with us and this is what it allowed us to do. We've done a lot of that through video, but also we've kind of given them the tools so that they can go off and do it on their own. And we don't have to be all that in, in, you know, involved and it becomes part of their PR strategy. And so then you know, we have a nice ripple effect that happens. So I do I do think that's very worthwhile. I do agree, um, but I also think there is a time and a place for traditional media coverage, and sometimes you just can't beat a well-placed piece in the FT, or uh, <laughs> um, particularly when you have a, a public listed company, you know, those pieces of coverage move stock prices, you know, they are a great way, you know, op-ed in a newspaper is a great way to shift opinion, um, and because those traditional media sources are kind of anchors, I guess, for some of this content so that they drive those conversations and, and they become reference points online. So again, you know, um, thinking about when I, I was at Twitter, we did a piece of research with Newsworks, which is the organisation that represents the newspaper industry. And we found that people actually did like to follow trusted news brands on Twitter. And that was really important part of their experience because of the trust, mm -hmm. because those brands were trusted and they knew that the information they were getting from those newspapers and, and news organisations was verified. And as we kind of see this 
fake news epidemic spreading the world, I think, you know, people more than ever are really anchored to like, well, you know, what does the New York Times say about this? What does Rory at the BBC think about this, right? Because those people are like our linchpins. They're the people we can look to and trust in, a, in an increasingly fragmented media environment where we don't necessarily know the sources and, and the information that are coming towards us. I was talking to somebody at the back of the room earlier who said, you know, I hear this almost every time I get into a conversation with PR people, that, you know, at the end of the day, our CEO still cares most about whether, you know, he's got a big well, that's story true too. Yeah. with his, you know, <laughs> with his <laughs> photograph. And, and, but, but I do wonder whether there's a disconnect between all the things that you think you can do and the sort of traditional swim lane that perhaps your, your senior management still thinks PR belongs in or in your companies have you overcome that 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 gap i think they still i think they still put quite a lot of uh emphasis on traditional media but they president of our business is a massive massive twitter user and a huge linkedin fan and so it's not hard for us to convince him to use those channels. He, he's, he's very much on board. One of the other elements, actually, I was just thinking about um, as, uh, as you were talking is that it's been, uh, it's been a shift for me coming from LinkedIn to see uh, just how much influence the uh, industry analysts have on our business and how much time we've spent investing in them as influencers and sharing content with them and then working with them to create content that we can put out into the world. Um, we've actually had customers come and say, you know, if Gartner doesn't endorse you, then we, we simply won't um, choose you as a solution. And that, that's a big, that was a big shift for me in terms of my background and what I was getting used to. And so I've, I actually spend just as much of my time focusing on that audience as I do traditional media, uh, which is interesting. So one of the most interesting findings, I thought, in, in the research um, was that 61% of, of respondents wanted companies to be collaborative and collaborate with them when it comes to product development and communications. And, and so I was wondering you know, how, how sort of formally you guys are using crowdsourcing and co-creation with your users to tell their stories. Is that, is that just another way of saying, you know, we want to be part of the story or is there something different going on there? So at Square, we take that really seriously. At a macro business level, we use a methodology called the Jobs to be Done framework, which is um, a management theory written by a chap called Clayton Christensen. And what that means is that every year, this time every year, we sit down and we think about why our customers are hiring Square. Like what is the business purpose that they're looking for when they hire us? And that might be, right, they want to get paid. But we have a number of other business products in the US. We have something called Square Capital, which is small business loans. So they want to borrow money to grow their business. We have something called Caviar, which is a food delivery service. So they want to get food quickly. And then we build our business around those use cases and what those businesses tell us they want us to do for them. Because if we just build a product in the silo, what's the point if we're not listening to our customers and building in products that they want and that's one of the big challenges that we have in the UK so we launched here in the UK in March of this year so there's this enormous US business that's been around for nine years listed on the stock exchange super successful in the US and we just took a product from the US and brought it to the UK um, but actually the business environment is really different here in the UK so one of the things we really found this year is that we are having to spend a huge amount of time listening to customers but then having to relay those messages back to all of our product teams 
magazines that sit in the US and say to them why this product isn't going to work for a UK audience because actually we don't have state taxes here we have VAT and VAT's always 20% and then we put service on top of that and service is 12.5% and you don't leave cash for a tip and all of these very like boring pieces but when you're a small business person and you're running a, a restaurant that's super important because uh, it means the difference between charging your customers the right amount of money and not charging your customers the right amount of money so it, it's super super important for us to listen to our customers we do that through you know more traditional kind of focus groups we have a customer service team um, based out of our Dublin office who actually spend a fair bit of time doing outbound insights calls to our customers we also have a closed Facebook group for our beta merchants so those are our merchants that are running our beta apps for us and testing them and coming back to us with live feedback about glitches and things that work and things that don't work so being customer centric you know thinking about the jobs to be done for our customers is that absolutely at the core of what we do as a business um, and I think without that we wouldn't have a business without our customers we're nothing we um, when I was at LinkedIn we we famously talked a lot about you know opening up our API and, and offering developers to come in and, and develop on the platform and that's something at SAP because our ERP in the cloud is such an all-encompassing solution a couple of months ago, we announced a software developer kit and said, look, you know, we want you to make this better. If you have an idea, you know, because you might be using it for retail or manufacturing or finance or all kinds of different things, if you have an idea, and we had one customer that had a very, very specific you know, real estate application that they wanted to create, so they built it. And we do PR around that, and we encourage them to do PR around that because for us that just means that the solution is becoming more robust, we have more options, uh, and I think most technology companies today don't want to remain too closed because then they don't have as many options, and it's a, it's a good news story for them as well. You know, if they can open it up and have a, a much more robust solution at the end, then that's, that's even better. Yeah, and I think I think that it's where some some of the big B two B brands are, are really leading the way. And um, Microsoft's decoded event a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, um, where they bring together all their partners, all their customers, a bunch of thought leaders, and they have a a Microsoft-owned TED-style mass event to bring people together. Is a way of them kind of really leveraging these big communities they've built over many many years. And I, I guess that really, they, you know, especially. Um, Helen, Helen's business, that just sounds like a perfect example of bringing customers in. I guess it's about communicating it in the right way so everybody knows that before the negative headlines hit. Yeah, and it's not a story that journalists particularly want to write, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> and as you said, it tends to be the negative stories yeah, that, yeah. that hit the headlines, and I think that's one of the frustrations of PR people is that you, you know of all this great stuff, but it, it, it tends to be you're in the spotlight with the one thing that goes wrong. One of the other things you referenced in, in the survey towards the end there was, was social purpose. And I, I, I hear a lot of criticism, I've personally probably made a lot of criticism about technology companies being insufficiently focused on social purpose. Um, but it, it, some of that criticism I think is a little unfair when the social purpose is so intrinsically tied up in the business purpose, right? So, you know, if, if you're Facebook, your social purpose is building communities um, bringing people together, um, and that also happens to be your business. Happy coincidence. But I, I wonder, I wonder at the extent to which you guys think about social purpose in a way that's separate from the the solutions you provide. Uh, whether that's an emphasis for you. I think lots of technology companies are woefully behind on this stuff because their platforms and their businesses have grown at like absolutely exponential rate. 
and the kind of the, the, the company, the business, the people that work there have really lagged behind. So they're, they're always playing catch up. Um, and when they're playing catch up, really they're hiring engineers, more engineers to build more products, to, to do more things. Um, and, and when someone says, oh, I think probably we need to hire a public policy manager in Germany, um, it kind of <laughs> falls on deaf ears, right? Because those things are just not prioritized at a strategic level by big California technology companies, particularly, in, particularly those that are living in California. You know, this is the, the brave new world. This is the land of free speech. It's the home of gay rights. Like everything goes in California in a way that it certainly doesn't in lots of the European countries. Um, so I think a lot of businesses are paying, you know, a huge amount of catch up and finding that engaging with uh, politicians, policymakers, um, people, stakeholders within those environments is something that, that they do probably too late um, and probably not with enough gusto. So as you say, whilst they probably have a great vision and, and think that that's enough to carry them through, it, it really isn't. And I think, you know, being able to demonstrate local relevance, being able to understand the concerns in each individual market and being able to explain and reassure people and educate them about the challenges that you're facing as a business actually has real dividends. So I think, you know, when you do sit down with policymakers and, and you go through with them the challenges and you explain the things that you're doing to mitigate those challenges, it has a really positive impact, but it takes quite a lot of work and it's not something that technology companies would consider to be scalable. And that's the big phrase in technology companies, you know, how does it scale, how does it scale? It doesn't, sitting down with the policymakers in, in Brussels doesn't, doesn't really scale. So that's something technology companies have been slow to adopt in my opinion. And I think this cuts to really why we did it. The negative storylines about the tech industry as a whole are growing really, really, really loud and more and more polarised. So you have the kind of lovely pictures of everybody living a wonderfully technology life, which is kind of stock photography. And then you have the, the real world pieces. And the tech industry needs to get ahead of that narrative and make the changes now. Otherwise, it'll just get even more polarised. It's a bit like um, the, the airlines had uh, and certainly the, 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 the people that made the engines that go into airlines were the, were the first people to the first companies to really get on board with CSR and the green agenda because it was absolutely core to their business and as soon as it becomes core to the business you have to wake up and make a difference and I just think there's a really good opportunity for the brave brands to get ahead of that and actually acknowledge that we need to do a better job to communicate the benefits of tech and what, what we need to do to get to a more uh, positive future with tech than the negative one that's being painted with or without us. I was going say, it's also a really noisy space. Yeah. It's very, very difficult, and I agree with you, Helen. It's very difficult for a big tech company to make any kind of impression. I have a friend who is in the communications team at Facebook, and she said, you know, I, I can spend all year with policymakers, and, you know, I work to help support small businesses and help them grow. And then, you know, the moment Facebook becomes embroiled in something like rigging, you know, helping to, the Russians rig the election, all of that goodwill is lost. And, you know, it can feel, and I imagine, and I've worked with a number of public policy teams who feel like, you know, they toil away and really believe in what they're doing, and all of it can be just taken out with one thread. And that, that is certainly unfortunate. Yeah, uh, but uh, just an observation, and, and my observation is that that's, there's an element of that in every business, right? I'm sure the people who spent, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on United Airlines Fly the Friendly Skies campaign felt like all of their work was completely undermined by a couple of flight attendants who decided it was a good idea to beat up a doctor. You know, I, I've, I've worked with sort of people in the 
PR business of fast food who do a great job of telling everybody how fresh their ingredients are, and then you get a wonderful YouTube video of some guy smearing something unpleasant on a pizza before it goes out, and all of that good work is undermined. I mean, that's the reality of you know, our lives, really. I mean, uh, great. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, I think we'll be around for a few minutes. Uh, there seems to be plenty of breakfast left in back there, so um, take advantage of, uh, pick them clean. Uh, <laughs>